Today on The Black Goat, we talk about hype in science, where does it come from and what effects does it have, and a letter about dropping a co-author who's also a friend. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Black Goat. I'm here with Alexa Tullett and Samin Vizier. I'm Sanjay Srivastava. And the last time we talked to you all was just before Samin had to say goodbye to Bear, her dog. And uh, so, Samin, how are you doing with uh, all of that? I'm good now. It's been a week. Um, and I didn't really know what to expect. So everybody had warned me that it's really hard. But I've also not generally had a hard time with goodbyes and things like that. And so I was kind of getting cocky and thought that I would be fine. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a mix of those two things. So like what I didn't expect was that I was like basically crying all the time that I was thinking. Like anytime I thought about her, I would start crying for the first couple days. And then it got better. And then, yeah, it was weird. Like I was like thinking and saying like the things people say in movies after a breakup I was like I just want her back and what if I never love another dog as much as I loved her (laughs) Um, but it was also interesting because it was I've never been really sad without also being a little bit depressed so like usually for me sadness comes with like the whole world sucks and life sucks and nothing's worthwhile but this Mm. was like completely different this was like very specific constrained circumscribed sadness and Uh, And then, like, so normally when I'm sad or depressed, I don't eat very much and I lose a lot of weight. Whereas this time I was like, I'm going to stuff my face with ice cream. And I bought a whole (laughs) raspberry pie that I've been eating for the last few days, which I'm going to eat some of in front of Sanjay for his tweet about me, about the raspberry pie. You're still, you're just going to rub that in, aren't you? Mm, I I agreed with you. All I did was play with your ratio on Twitter. (laughs) And now you're mocking me with raspberry pie. (laughs) Yes, I've literally I been mean, eating was... a raspberry pie for a couple of days. I have to finish it before SPSP. This was like, I mean, you you had a chance, to obviously, to like prepare and, and yeah. all of that. And, you know, um, yeah, it, it's, uh, it, it was interesting kind of, yeah, I don't know, just sort of seeing you kind of before it and, and I don't know, you've, you've got pretty good defense mechanisms. But, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Alexa texted me one day, like a couple days after, and she was like, how are you doing? And I was like, medium. And I was like, can I call you? And she's like, well, I'm about to play chess with my friend, but like, what's up? And I was like, I can't stop crying. <laughs> and she was like, <laughs> and then she I called, called you. <laughs> just to yeah. clarify. Um, yeah. Do you feel um, sort of happy that you, like, are you relieved that you felt sad about Bear? Or are yeah, you, like, bummed no, that am. you're not, like... I was really worried. If I didn't cry at all, like, even when, while putting her down, I would have been, like, okay, I definitely need, like, psychoanalysis or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I was I was relieved that I was sad. And then, like, by the third day, I was like, okay, I'm ready to not be sad anymore. This is... Yeah, yeah. Um, and then it pretty much got better right after that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was pretty ideal in a lot of ways. Yeah, I was really lucky that I got to choose the day and spend a lot of time with her before. Mm -hmm. And I think I deserve some kind of prize because I haven't yet looked at websites to adopt a new dog, but it's like any day now I will cave and do it because I can't, I can't wait. But you don't have the like feeling that you're not going to like other dogs? I do worry about that, but I decided I just have to get a dog that's as great as Bear. Huh. So I think I'm going to get either the same breed or a very similar breed. Maybe a Newfoundland. Those are pretty cute. How yeah, can you not love a really Newfoundland? Cute. Nobody could not love those dogs. I just saw on your Facebook the other day, you had like a, a video of a Newfoundland carrying a Pomeranian around in a bucket. Yeah, Jesse, my God. So my husband, <laughs> Jesse, grew up with a Pomeranian and still has one back home and she wants to get one here. And I've been thinking about getting a Newfoundland and she found these videos. It's like a YouTube channel, I think, of like these Newfoundlands and Pomeranian who live together. And there's these hilarious videos of them together. There's one of the Newfoundland lying there and the Pomeranian jumps up and like bites it. And the Newfoundland like lays down and plays dead. (laughs) It's hilarious. Okay, I'm going to make a note in the show notes to find that video (laughs) and post it. So speaking of uh, friends, how's that for a transition? Alexa, (laughs) you... Yeah, I was going to make a similar transition, but I was going to say... You commemorated a friendship recently. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. 
Um, yeah, so I got a new, very, very small um, tattoo on the weekend. Uh, so I went with my roommate Jude to visit my friend Joni, who lives in Athens, Georgia. Um, and we, so now that Joni lives in Athens, um, it's like, you know, hard for us to hang out very often. Um, but when Joni used to live in Tuscaloosa, we had like a pretty good um, three-person friendship going on, which I think is like a rare occurrence, you know, for like all of the two-person relationships and a three-person friendship to like be really strong and for all of you to have a lot of fun together. Um, so anyways, we had been sort of like talking about getting a, a tattoo um, and had only come up with pretty lame ideas and actually maybe the, the idea that we went with is kind of lame too but I kind of like it um so I got um an XO and then Jude got an XO in Braille um and then Joni got an XO in um in Morse code um which Joni's is the most cryptic because really what it looks like is like she has like a sewing line across her wrist mm-hmm. um which is cryptic and a little creepy um but Jude's is kind of cool. It looks a little bit like dice, but then, um, but yeah, it's XO and Braille. Um, so yeah, Sanjay, you, you were asking if you could feel it, which I think actually yeah, like, yeah. you is can it like, feel is it, it like raised? Braille. Yeah. yeah, but then so, with so, time, it'll flatten out. Yeah. Does Jude have any particular connection to Braille, or was it just like you guys were thinking of three ways to depict XO? It was mostly just thinking of three different ways to do it, but uh, Jude had a really um, close friend when she was younger who was like deaf which is not I don't like not that related but um I don't know I she's it felt like it was a sensible one to give her um and then I think mine is like the most basic and I am the most basic of the three of us (laughs) so you realize now that you've commemorated a three-way friendship you have to prove your dedication to our three-way friendship you know what this means are we getting goat um, tattoos? Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're all, we're all going to be... So we're recording this the day before we're all going to be in Atlanta for SPSB. Should we find like a tattoo parlor near the... I think so. I feel like that's such a... I mean, I'm impressed with you, Alexa, that that, I, that feels like such a huge commitment. One to just... I've, so I've never gone to get a tattoo that I wanted to get. Um, I, I not to be a huge bummer. I, I I had radiation for cancer, so I have tattoos for that. But no, like I don't have any fun tattoos. But when I was younger, I would I would sort of think like, oh, I, I should get a tattoo. And then I I could never even commit to myself to something I wanted to have on my body mm-hmm. for my whole life. And then the idea of then also connecting that to a friendship where it's like, oh, friendships come and go. <laughs> it's interesting that you say that um, because I feel like. Well, I don't know. There's, um, there's like the first tattoo thing, which I think is like maybe a bigger hurdle than the second. And I already have one. Um, but also I found it like making the decision about like whether to get it and what to get just felt like a no brainer to me. I think because it's friends and like friends that I sort of like, um, I know that I'm not going to regret, uh, tattooing something about our friendship on my body, but like we've at first we started we talked about having like I don't know we had like spent five minutes looking at the internet for different possible tattoos and one thing that came up was like a symbol from My Little Pony that's like a cloud with like a rainbow lightning bolt um which is like a dumb idea and we were all sort of like maybe we should just get that because it's supposed to it's supposed to mean loyalty or something it's like rainbow dashes tattoo (laughs) um and I think we were like semi-serious about like maybe getting this tattoo and I was like whatever like it's fine if it's like a really really dumb embarrassing symbol um so like I think what we got was probably a better idea but I was like ready to do something like pretty dumb because I guess I figure like at that point you just have like a funny dumb story right Um, well I mean in some ways it's like the the thing that I was hung up on when I was younger was the whatever I got a tattoo of itself had to be like the meaning of the image had to be important to me and whatever, as well as I had to like the image. In some ways, like the fact that you're doing this with your friends means the meaning of the image is the memory of having done it with your friends. Yeah, so exactly. in that sense, it could be some weirdo 
kooky, funny, whatever. But it is, it is kind of funny, like, I don't know, when you were saying, like, it, you just wanted to do it with your friends and that seemed okay. It just immediately I got the image in my mind of people who get married and get wedding rings tattooed on their ring finger mm-hmm. and then they get divorced. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, well, mm-hmm. shit, what do I do with this now? Mm-hmm. But I, I guess <laughs> friendships like, are a little is, different. Like, and yeah. yeah, I feel like divorce is more more likely than I mean with a friendship it's not as clear like what terrible thing would happen like I guess if you get in a huge fight and then you like aren't friends anymore that would be kind of sad um and then it might suck that you have the tattoo um but that seems less likely than me getting divorced (laughs) right (laughs) well yeah you're it's I don't friend I have friendships at a certain point like when you're when you're young the possibility of like having a falling out with a friend when you're in like middle school or high school that looms pretty large it kind of seems like i don't know i mean i'm uh, maybe i'm totally wrong about this like i i feel about the the friends i have now who are my closest friends it's really hard for me to imagine having falling outs with them like i could imagine like yeah. i had a dream about you sanjay where we and, got in a big uh-oh. fight that's the closest i could imagine <laughs> <laughs> Do I have Why to did take you that get in a big now? fight, Samin? No, I'm not. What did telling. I do? I'm not telling. What did I do? No, okay. I'm not telling. <laughs> you're, you're, Samin's like, we have to get these goat tattoos. I'm not going to risk that. Uh, okay. Uh, anyway, um, should we uh, should we read our letter? Yeah. Okay. Speaking of friends, this actually this is a great segue. I didn't even think we were. I didn't realize we were doing that, but this is a great segue. This is yeah. It all worked out. All right. Our letter. Um, Dear the black goat. I am a grad student and I've been working on a paper with a co-author who is a postdoc at another institution. We decided to use a type of analysis that neither of us had done before, but that my grad student friend had taken a class in. This friend talked all the time about how she loved this type of analysis and how she was good at it, so we decided to invite her onto the collaboration to do this analysis. Well, it turns out this was a mistake, as she has very little true understanding of the method and her data analysis practices are less than stellar. Myself and the postdoc would like to drop her from the project, yet we have no idea how to do this. It doesn't help that she is my friend and is a very sensitive person. My question is, when is it okay to drop someone from a project, and how on earth do you navigate this minefield? Thanks. Signed, she's unskilled, and I'm aware. Um, full disclosure, we came up with the, uh, the pseudonym <laughs> this time um, because the, the person who wrote the letter asked us to... Fill and if in. you can't don't recognize it, it's from Dunning Kruger Effect, unskilled and unaware. Yes. That was our little inside joke. I so, Samin, was this? The, admit it. This was your dream. Yeah, wasn't right. It? <laughs> <laughs> you always brag about how you're so good at longitudinal data analysis. Um, now, my reaction to this is like, don't be friends with sensitive people. <laughs> that's terrible Just, it, it's not even like okay the, the the like the reasonable time like impossible time machine answer would be go back yeah. and don't do the collaboration but Samin goes all the way to like just don't be friends with this person in the first place you guys are acting like that's a ridiculous answer <laughs> Uh, this poor person is not going to get good advice out of us, are they? <laughs> We're just going <laughs> to. I feel like that is one uh, of the the number one criteria that you select your friends based on. I'm okay if they're sensitive mm-hmm. about other things, but they have to be able to have direct conversations with me, or like we have to be able to be direct with each other. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to drop them from a co-authorship. Yep, that's the yeah. Um, okay, so for someone who, who didn't have uh, as refined taste in friends, <laughs> I mean, some sensitive this is, people are very cool. This is so it's just, I feel like it's generally tough to drop co authors, period, even when it's just a, a working relationship, right? Because I mean, I think the like the ideal case is that you've, as part of a co authorship, you've hopefully defined pretty well at the beginning what everyone's contribution is going to be. And of course, I mean, it's easier when someone's just, if someone's like too busy and they're not doing the work, that's a much clearer thing than this case when they are doing the work and they're just apparently not doing it all that well. Um, And yeah, but, but right. So like the ideal case at least is like, it's defined in advance and then you can say, and, and it's probably, that's probably not, I mean, it's sort of defined 
that this person's contribution was that they were going to do these analyses. The problem mm -hmm. is that uh, they seem to, this thing that they think that they're an expert in, they seem to be not doing very well. Right. Yeah. I think, like, in this case, so at this point, I think that, like, keeping this person on the paper um, is sort of just the cost of doing business. Like, maybe it would be different if this person, like, really hadn't, attempted to do what they said they were going to do in good faith or something like that. And um, then maybe you could sort of justify dropping them. But it sounds like this person, um, yeah, was like unaware of the their weaknesses in this area and and maybe like had good intentions. And I think sometimes you you have people who are collaborators on papers who didn't do that much. And that's just. Yeah. You know. So, yeah, here's my more practical answer, which is similar to what you're saying. In general, I think people worry too much about. Um, how much is going to hurt them to have other people as co-authors. I think in the end, yeah. it doesn't really hurt you. So like yeah. from that selfish perspective, I wouldn't worry about keeping her as a co-author. So then there's the ethical issue of having a co-author who hasn't done much. Um, and also I think it's worth giving her a chance to take herself off the paper, but without, you know, mm -hmm. causing a rift in the friendship. So I think mm -hmm. what I would do in this situation is I would say, Hey, you know, it turns out we're going to like to use this other person or whatever, this other approach to get the stats done. Cause whatever for, you have to come up with some reason that doesn't destroy your friendship um but if you still want to contribute to the paper you know you could help with writing or editing the writing or mm -hmm. looking up references or things like that but it's totally i totally understand if you don't want to do that because that wasn't your original role in the paper mm -hmm. just let us know mm -hmm. something so that like it's kind of a hint like maybe you shouldn't be on the paper anymore yeah. but like since we already offered you authorship if you want to earn it like you can do it this other way Right. Yeah. And I would say also if you're sort of earlier in the process or if it is more of a situation, this, this sounds sort of ambiguous um, in terms of like how much work this person is actually doing or how much their work they're trying to do. Um, but if, if somebody is like really not pulling their weight and it's early in the process, I think there are sort of ways for you to basically say like, it seems like you may not have time to make this project a priority. And maybe if that's the case, then maybe you don't want to be an author because if you are an author, like, that these are like the expectations kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so frame it as a time issue. I mean, it, it seems like the, the hard thing is, assuming that this analysis really is what needs to be done on the project, that they're going to have to find someone else who yeah. really does have expertise in the analysis. And so one way or another, this, this person's, they're going to have to let this person know like where, I mean, I guess you can have the person do the analysis and then the other person does it right and you just use the second person or whatever. Um, I mean, I do like, Samine, your idea of like offering them other ways to contribute so that you can keep them on and kind of satisfy both like trying not to be too confrontational, um, but also like let them actually legitimately earn a place on the byline. But don't give but them I, anything I important one, because if they're... Well, yeah. Right, nothing that they can screw up. Right. But... Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think one way or the other, like the this has to be done with without compromising the science, and so you have to you do have to have the analyses done right. I mean, I'm not sure that the comment was both this person has little true understanding of the method and her data analysis practices are less yeah, than stellar. Right. I'm not quite sure what that means, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but so I do think like you have to find a way around this that doesn't compromise the validity of the science and so that might mean just bringing on another expert the other thing going back to my first answer is like so the question is how do you when is it okay to drop someone from project and how do you navigate this minefield when a friendship starts feeling like a minefield and like through no fault of your own then maybe let the minds go off like maybe just be direct and say like you know we asked you to be on this project because of this analysis it turns out that i don't think you have the skills that we need you know, we kind of think that maybe you shouldn't be on the project then because that was the main reason. Like, what do you think about that? Are you okay with that? Mm -hmm. And if that ends a friendship, then maybe that's a friendship you're better off without. Like, that's not a terrible, mean thing to say, to say, like, well, we invited you on for this reason. It turns out that's not working out. Like, is it okay if we mm -hmm. go back on that agreement? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, ways to soften that are... If the person that you are bringing on has more experience and <clears throat> if they can point to specific f or you can point to specific flaws or problems, so you can say, hey, look, you know, we were we were I was talking about this with so and so who's also an expert in this technique. Um, they raised some concerns and I actually think they're valid. And this person has been doing this for years and 
I'm really sorry, but I, I think we need to ask this person to do the analysis for us or whatever. So, but to sort of like things like they have more expertise or things like here's a specific, like we're not just, so to make it clear, like we're not just using this as a pretext to drop you. And at least the friend is a graduate student. Um, and so hopefully they have some self-awareness that they don't know everything, even if they don't specifically have the awareness that they don't know this particular mm -hmm. technique. But yeah, it's a rough one. I, I don't know. I think, uh, I think there's probably no way to completely spare this friend's feelings because whatever you mm -hmm. do, unless they're so completely clueless that you like tell them to do something different on the project and they don't realize why, which seems unlikely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. I mean, this is me being a personality psychologist, but I also think like if you give them something else to do, they're probably going to mess that up too. If they're like that unaware of their limits of their skills and they're that sensitive, like things are going to go wrong at some point, either in this project or the next project. I'm kind of skeptical mm -hmm. that there is something worth salvaging here. But, I mean, obviously I'm making strong dispositional attributions based on a five-line <laughs> email. So take that with a grain of salt. Yeah. Yeah, okay. and also I think, like, yeah. the, the idea of sort of sparing people's feelings, I think that's um, that what you're saying about, like, just sort of, like, setting off the minefield is something that I think is probably worthwhile in friendships that are... Um, I guess like really ironically, I guess the more important friendships, um, because you want to make sure that like, yeah, you can be open with the person and you're not like walking on eggshells all the time or trying to protect them all the time. But yeah. if somebody is like a, like a pretty casual friend, I guess in that case, I'm sort of m more willing to sort of smooth things over. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, she might also surprise you and you might be blunt with her and then she might be like, yep, you're right. I didn't know that analysis as well as I thought I did. And then your friendship will be stronger. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. So I think our answer is get tattoos together, <laughs> <laughs> then get into your time machine and pre-break up with them so the tattoos never happen. Um, but if neither of those will work, then uh, yeah, you, you got to... I mean, you can you can reassign them, whatever, but you gotta you gotta do what you gotta do. Yeah. Sorry that that was a terrible summary, wasn't it? I think you either write it out if you don't think it's gonna get worse, like write it out and be done with it and have her as a co-author. Or if this is like a close friend or is this gonna keep happening, then I would do it now. Like just be yeah. blunt with her. You know, you can sugarcoat, but be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Or actually, you know, since there's another collaborator, just like. Make the postdoc collaborator do it. Yeah, yeah. Just tell them, can you dump this person from yeah, the front? Right. And I'll, and then you can totally be like, I, I to you know, you. I wanted to keep you, but she said we had to get rid of you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm so sorry. Just blame um, it on Sanjay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, okay. Cool. Well, yeah. Does that, uh, do, does that feel like we've yep. done what we can? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Cool. All right. Thanks for your letter. She's skilled and I'm unaware. Um, also known as please give me an, or I, and I'm aware. Sorry. That, I just ruined the joke. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Um, so if you're listeners, if you are listening and you want to get in touch with us, uh, we love getting letters. You can email us letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. Um, and thanks to everyone who sends us letters. Thanks to everyone who tweets at us, who we don't get a lot of traffic on the Facebook page. We do get sometimes, and that's always fun. Um, and uh, you can rate us on iTunes. Um, that helps people find us. And <clears throat> if you want to find us on the web, we're at www.theblackcoatpodcast.com. Our Twitter is at blackcoatpod. Facebook is facebook.com slash blackcoatpod. So for our main topic today, we wanted to talk about hype and... Uh, sort of what's what's the role that hype plays in science and sort of communication among scientists as well as scientists engaging with the general public and we read a couple of articles or <laughs> we, we posted on our Google Doc a couple of articles mm -hmm. that some of us may have read and some of us may not have uh, bless you Samin. um uh, actually, one of one of the interesting articles, there was a discussion on Twitter a couple weeks ago, which I think is a good sort of framing for this, um, which was about whether journalists covering science should 
uh, whether scientists should ask or expect mm -hmm. journalists to show drafts of their articles bef to the scientists before publishing. And uh, this was, there was a big, someone had posted this as a Twitter poll, there was a big discussion. Um, uh, and it turns out Chris Chambers chimed into the discussion with, I thought, a really interesting contribution where he basically said that some years ago he had posed this in an op-ed in The Guardian and had gotten a lot of pushback from journalists. Um, and, and something that scientists, I think, don't realize is that this is considered borderline unethical in journalism. Um, and, you know, as, as Chris put it, just imagine saying the same thing but for politician instead of scientist. And you can quickly see why journalists yeah. don't like the idea of having to show drafts to the people they're covering. Um, but so Chris did ended up with a group of people. Uh, um, Petrak Sumner was the first author on on one of the articles. Um, studies on the source of hype in journalistic articles. In I thought I was going to sneeze there. Um, <laughs> Uh, in, in in the news, and one of the things that they found was that the presence of exaggerated claims in press releases was one. Uh, so so press releases put out by universities and approved by the scientists. One, it was quite high. So this is quoting from the abstract of the article: forty percent of the press. So they looked at a bunch of press releases from universities in the UK. Forty percent of the press releases contained exaggerated advice. 33% contains exaggerated causal claims. 36% contained exaggerated inference to humans from animal research. And they also found that whether or not this was present in the press release was hugely determinative of whether the news coverage contained these claims as well. Mm -hmm. So it does seem in the case of even, even when other people are writing about our science that it's the scientists making exaggerated claims doing the hype that that we're often the origin of it and of course we often also hype to each other uh in in journal articles mm -hmm. as well and so mm -hmm. that was kind of the the impetus for this discussion about hype yeah i had an interesting reaction reading chris chambers's like tweets and his explanation of the backstory of and in the guardian article he also talks about um, that he originally thought it was a journalist adding the hype, which like I've never heard Chris Chambers be credulous before. I've never heard him be like, scientists aren't doing bad things. <laughs> and so when I read that, I was like, really? Chris thought that scientists were being good and it was like other people corrupting the message? That's kind of mm -hmm. sweet. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I guess because I don't see press releases very often and I don't read much news coverage of scientific findings. So that, I'm not that sensitive to that, but I see lots of papers all the time through editing with a lot of strong claims in the discussion sections and abstracts and so on. And then now I also um, see the press releases before they go out for SPPS. So the SPSP press office writes the press releases for SPPS and um, I see them, they, they go through me before they go out. And so I'll often do like change tracking and like change words and point out things that are like making causal claims when they shouldn't be or things like that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're in the quotes from the authors and that's a little bit awkward because then the press person has to go back to the authors and be like, the editor wants you to change your quote. Um, <laughs> but often they're from the, the person writing the press release. Um, and that, I mean, it's, it is more time, right? And I don't know what the equivalent of that for university press releases would be. And I, I don't know if this gets into journalistic ethics, if like as editor or as an author, you, um, vet the press releases but if if they're coming from your own institution it seems like that should be kosher that you should be allowed to vet the press releases that your institution oh, or your society than, is writing about you i think it's more than i think when it's a press release so that's pr that's completely different from journalism I, see, yeah. I think it would be irresponsible for a pr person to, to vet it. write something about like a university pr person to write something at the university where they yeah. don't give the and I, I actually know of a case a number of years ago where uh, a friend of mine did some uh, politically controversial work and the university press office added a comparison of a political figure to Hitler <laughs> in the press release then didn't tell them and mm -hmm. they got I mean his email box was full of death threats yeah. and hate mail mm -hmm. and whatever and and he was not pleased about this yeah. to say the least um so no no I think the the journalistic I mean one of the things about journalists is like 
where I think part of where the misunderstanding comes from from scientists is we have this sort of peer review culture. We show each other drafts. We do all this stuff. And so I think it's natural to think, like, why doesn't the journalist share their thing with me, too? But we're not their peers, and they're not our peers. Mm -hmm. Like, they're covering us. Mm -hmm. And if they're doing their jobs right... They should sometimes be saying things speaking that we truth wouldn't to power, right? like. We're the yeah, power yeah. and the speaking truth to power. <clears throat> right. They, like if, if they want to write up one of our studies and, and just sort of say, like, here's what the study said, that's fine. But they should always have room to be critical of our studies and, and how they cover it. We, it. It's almost like shocking why people don't just assume that. Like, why would you... Again, the politics example, like who in the world would think that, you know, political reporters shouldn't occasionally like be critical right, of right. politicians or whatever? Yeah, um, I think we don't yeah. think of ourselves as the power in that speak truth to power dynamic, but we are in many ways. We're seen as an authority and there's not a lot of people that can challenge us if we're if our system is messed up, if we're you know, letting things through peer review and vouching for things that are wrong, there's not that many people that can call us on it. Journalists are among the only ones. And actually, one of the reasons I suggested this topic for this episode is that last week, I'm on a study committee for the National Academy of Sciences, and we meet every few months, and we have people come and speak to us, and it's on, the study committee is on reproducibility. And last week, one of the people who came in, we had a couple of reporters speak to us, Christia Schwanden and Laura Helmuth, who's the Washington Post science editor. And she said something in her presentation. She said that there's like a code of, yeah, like basically like kind of an implicit code of ethics among science journalists. And if as a science journalist, you write up a story based on a single study with some exceptions, like if you discovered a new dinosaur, okay, but like most single studies don't warrant being written up as news. And if you do that, you're considered a credulous hack. And she said that phrase, credulous Aww. hack, because I remember thinking, like, I think if someone called me credulous, that would be, like, the biggest insult they could yeah. get me. <laughs> um, uh -huh. So I tweeted out that quote, and some people disagreed and said that's, you know, journalists do this all the time, and I'm sure that's true, too. And But it's nice to mm -hmm. know that among, like, very powerful science writers, they think that that would hurt your reputation. Yeah, right. Well, maybe we can talk a little bit more about, like, what exactly it means um, to have like hype in your press release or to overclaim or, um, to add spin, which is one of the terms that, um, Chris Chambers uses. Um, because, so I think there is some sort of like, in my experience, I think there could be some diffusion of responsibility in the process of like writing a press release and then having that press release get, um, disseminated to journalists. Um, because so in the times that I've uh, had, press releases written about my work at Alabama, um, there's somebody who writes it who's in our press office and then they run it by me and I have a lot of, I have basically total control over it. Um, but I also see the person who's in the press office as somebody who has some like insight into how this is done. So he has some expertise that, that I don't have. Um, and so I think probably more recently I've been, um, I've tried to be more careful about this. Um, but there is something that's different about writing a press release than about writing a paper, right? You're trying to make your claims relevant um, to like a broader public. Um, so I'm wondering what you guys think about like whether whether things like you know overgeneralizing your findings or generalizing your findings to something what that you didn't specifically look at in your paper, does that count as spin is that hype is that thing like the kind of thing that we should be avoiding like how do you make your research um how do you highlight its relevance to people um or maybe maybe i shouldn't be writing press releases i don't know um without, yeah i mean yeah, compromising your work you said like how do how can we make it relevant like my first reaction is yeah, like it right, either yeah. is or it's not and if it's not then let's not make it but yeah, mm -hmm. maybe that just leads to the path of, like, we should never write press releases for yeah, anything. And right. Maybe that's actually yeah, I mean, valid. I, I don't know. Maybe it is, but then, uh, yeah, I don't know. Is that the answer? There, I mean, the part of the issue is that there's no, there's very, very little accountability and there's very little sort of external constraint because, I mean, Taking what the Washington Post editor said, you know, about like journal, you know, journalists that write up single studies or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, the, the reality is like that's um, there are specialist science reporters who have the, the 
you know, are given the task and, and sort of given the space by editors and have the expertise to treat science coverage as a critical reporter ought to. But the reality is that there's lots of outlets where they're paying mm -hmm. journalists, you know, a pittance. And, you know, I mean, my wife is a freelance journalist and very often she's faced with this dilemma. She doesn't cover science, but I think the same is true in science coverage. She's faced with this dilemma that if she spent the amount of time she would like to spend on a story, um, she's not paid by the hour. She's paid by the word or by the article or whatever, that her hourly rate would be below minimum wage if she mm -hmm. actually spent the amount of time. And that's just the economic realities of journalists. And so what that means is that if you're writing, and that, and that's not, I don't, having known a lot of journalists, uh, my wife and, and a lot of people through her, um, I don't put that on the journalists. That's the 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 outlets that they write for that don't pay them enough to do a good job, and so they're just trying to make a living. Is that um, because we as so consumers don't pay enough for good reporting? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, the the you know we can get into the whole <laughs> like economics of journalism, which is complicated, but yeah, like it, I mean, there are some excellent science reporters who who write for outlets that that do that, but you know that's journalism is a really tough industry. But I think what that means for us as scientists is that yeah, you can write that sort of overclaiming, hyped up, spinny press release. And the reality is that it it probably will get covered in a very credulous way. Whether the person writing it is credulous or not is kind of beside the point. Their, their economic incentives are like they get a press release and they'll talk to you and they're not going to spend all this time digging into the paper. They may not have the expertise, et cetera. And so it's kind of on the scientist. It's on us. Like, I think when you write a press release, you should treat it as though this is kind of just going to get, you know, sort of restated yeah. uncritically. And there's no nothing stopping us because we don't call each other out. We don't peer review each other's press mm -hmm. releases. I mean, the, the facts mean that you're as an editor looking at the press releases, that's great. But that's there's at a university press office, nobody's going to be doing that. Um, it's on us, and that's kind of what Chris's study shows: is that what the, what comes through the press release is hugely right. affecting yeah. the coverage. One thing I thought was interesting about I didn't read the study, but I read the Guardian article about it: is that they their summary is that the hype is in the press release, and the way they determine that is to compare the press release to the peer reviewed article. And there were claims in the press release that were not warranted by what's in the peer-reviewed article. But I wonder what they mean by they checked it against the peer-reviewed article. So, like, if it's an example of, like, it was done in mice, but then the press release is about humans, um, does the discussion section of the peer-reviewed article make claims about humans? And if it does, then are you saying is the hype coded as being introduced in the press release? or in, Right? So, like, you can find parts of the peer-reviewed article that stick to the facts, but then there might be other parts of the peer-reviewed article that do make the exaggerations that the press release does. And I'd actually be shocked if a lot of the hype that's in the press release isn't, in at least in some form, maybe less exaggerated in the peer-reviewed article. But I thought it was interesting that they concluded that it gets introduced at the stage of press release, whereas my impression is more cynical and would be that I think it gets introduced in the discussion sections and abstracts and titles of the peer-reviewed article. I, I I suspect that there's some amount of manure getting shoveled on at every stage, right? Yeah. right? And so, right, yeah. yeah, I think the... Um, uh, you know, hype and overclaiming is going to get amplified at each stage, and, and and but I think part of what Chris's article showed was that the uh, scientists want to feel angelic and, and mm -hmm. superior, and we think it's the journalists doing it. Mm -hmm. And actually, that's probably much less of the hype is getting piled on at that stage because, again, sort of part of the them not having, in, in, if we're you know if we're not talking about specialist science journalists at outlets that pay them to be that, but if we're just talking about like some stringer who's told by an editor, You've, we're going to pay you two hours worth of labor to produce an article on this press release. Um, they don't have time to exaggerate either. Mm -hmm. They're just going to go mm -hmm. with what the release says. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, no, I mean, we we hype to each other, too. That's, mm -hmm. that's for sure. And I mean, that's part of what the Constraints on Generality paper that uh, Dan Simons and Steve Lindsay and Yuichi Shoda, and I think I'm forgetting someone yeah, else. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, that their their paper is saying we need to do more of this. 
they're not talking about necessarily for PR reasons. They're talking about for sort of replicability and mm -hmm. kind of scientific interpretability reasons. But there's incentives for us to hype to each other, too. Mm -hmm. um, at yeah. least there's an opportunity in peer review for us to call each other out. But we don't always do that. Right. So in the in the Chambers article, he talks about how um, how the work doesn't necessarily get more attention just because it has more hype. So the press releases that have more hype don't necessarily get more attention. Um, so that I'm curious, I agree with you, Samin, that I think probably these things get introduced at the stage of the you know the abstract and the discussion and things like that, um, and then maybe these they sort of get amplified at the stage of the press release. Um, but so. A, what do you think people's motivations are for overclaiming and hyping in their papers? And B, do you think that they're right? Like, so I, I assume their motivation, motivations have something to do with thinking that it's more likely that they'll get a paper in or their paper will get more attention or their research will be seen as sort of like more groundbreaking in a positive yeah. way. Um, so do you think that's that's what people's motivations are? And do you think that... They're right about that. I think it's a more noble version of that. I think that whenever we're doing research, we have various moments throughout the process, starting at the beginning, but it come, that feeling comes back again later. of like, wait, why does this matter again? And you mm -hmm. have to talk yourself into it mattering to keep going, to, to launch the project in the first place, and then mm -hmm. to keep going. And so I think part of what we do in the discussion section is we're trying to explain ourselves, but I think we really believe the explanations we give of why this matters. Yeah. So I don't think it's so much trying to like pull pull one over on other, on the readers. I think a lot of times authors believe it, but I do think they think that that's what journals want too. That journals want you to tell them why they should care and how, what what implications this could have, and to think big about the implications. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of journals do want that. I think all journals want that to some extent, right? All journals want you to feel some responsibility to make a case for. Yeah. So I think it's hard to know where to draw the line. And I think right now the incentives are aligned with that. I think that's an accurate perception of of the incentives. I think that part of what post-publication peer review is doing, although so far it's focused mostly on the method and results and not so much on the discussion, although people like Lee Jessam, I think, are have talked about like uh, researcher degrees of freedom in terms of the interpretation, so in the discussion and so on. Um, I think we need, if we want to rein that in, if, it, if we think it's gone too far and we want to rein it in, then we need to do the same thing that people have been doing with like p-hacking and stuff like that, which is calling it out when they see it and make changing the incentive structure, changing the calculus for authors when they're debating whether or not to say this could be the cure for whatever, or this could, you know, explain mm -hmm. all gender gaps and whatever, mm -hmm. um, to infl inflict some costs in overclaiming in terms of the implications and general generalizability and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think there's, I mean, I think there's like with a lot of things, there's a mix of motives probably. Like I, I think what you're saying, Samin, is, is definitely a, an important part of it. Wanting, wanting, people really do want to believe their work matters and, and it does matter to them personally. That's why they're doing it. And they, they kind of want to persuade other people or just want to share that with other people. I think there are also, you know, there are career incentives for, you know, you get more recognition, you get more acclaim if your work has, you know, these broader, broader impacts. I mean, that's mm -hmm. literally part of an NSF proposal is broader yeah. impacts. Yeah. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure that the, the finding from the Chambers paper, I didn't dig into this too closely. I do wonder if like some of that could be a suppressor selection yeah. effect that people hype less when they don't have to right. and so it may not it may not be that it doesn't have an effect I but rather that thought. it's sort of compensatory and that might make the correlation a little less um but you know i yeah i i think that the there's also a sense in which we're critical in peer review but we're also we're often kind of cheerleaders for our field in general and I don't know how much this happens in papers as opposed to like in press releases or in, in sort of public discourse. Like we have these sort of like everybody talks about how peer review is so horrible and reviewer two is a terrible person, whatever. And, and I think in, in the review and we've talked before in the creativity and rigor episode about kind of bad, bad faux rigor and that kind of thing. But there's also this kind of cheerleading that happens for it's like hooray social psychology. We 
you know, we've we've reduced discrimination or we've, you mm-hmm. know, helped kids learn or we've done these other things. Mm-hmm. And and I, and so I think there's some way in which we kind of let some of that go because it it kind of it's like burging. It's, yeah. you know, sort of it's it's three cheers for my field. It wasn't me personally, but this sort of the next time I'm, you know, Aunt Marge at Thanksgiving is asking me about my work. I can I, I can tell her a story about why my field matters well, or something. So just to say something really controversial, do you think that <laughs> so Baumeister says that personality is boring and we're not willing to like whatever. He didn't say exactly this, but I think that part of one perception out there is that personality psychologists don't make their work relevant to the world and aren't like good mm-hmm. at saying why it matters. So and then it turns out over the evolution of the field, social psych has become 10 times bigger than personality psych by most metrics, yeah. I think. Is that part of it? And is this evidence that hyping does work? Well, yeah. Like, I mean, like the the problem with with hype is that there's a discrepancy, right, between the, mm-hmm. you know, the the relevance of the work and the claims that are being made. And so, like, one way to reduce that discrepancy is to make like less sensational claims. Um, and maybe that's what personality has done. Um, but the, I think like, I think the incentive to do work that is, um, that is really relevant and that like your aunt would care about or your grandmother would care about is a good incentive. Actually, Your I grandmother think. doesn't care about whether there are five or six factors in the structure of personality. <laughs> I never said personality was boring. <laughs> no, I think, I mean, I think there's a really good, point underneath that which is that like we're and maybe this is sort of obvious but uh maybe not that the ways in which we hype we we hype on things that the the reality of it would be highly desirable right like we we hype broader impact because Mm -hmm. we think that actual broader impact would be really important Mm -hmm. and so i don't think the the corrective is to say we should like be hermits and or you know or retreat to the ivory tower or whatever it's like i think and i do think that's a uh, I think that's something that personality psychologists really should be looking at is how much are, how much are we engaging with important yeah. social issues. So I think some some definitely are, but I think as a field we ought to be always looking at that. Yeah. And so I think the fact that social psychology is engaging with racism, right. the fact that yeah. social psychology is engaging with other kinds of social inequality, that they're I was going to try to redeem myself for making things. that point. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, so what Samin just said, <laughs> I do think social psych. It's not. As simple as they hype more, I think they study more interesting questions than personalities, like, did until recently. I think personality is starting to... I think, you know, the factor structure debate really did bring us down in terms of, like, interestingness. It brought the average interestingness of personality research down quite a bit. I totally want to... Okay. I, I totally want to do an episode on the Big Five. Yeah. Um, I want to I wanna fight that claim. Uh, but anyway, sorry. Um, we someone suggested we do an episode on each one of our research areas, and it's like I just want to do an episode on the Big Five. Anyway, you know what? Um, to be like so, yes, factor structure five versus six. I don't think people care, um, but I think hey. <laughs> <laughs> Sanjay's grandmother really cares. <laughs> but honestly, like I think my f- the vast majority of my friends who don't know like really quite a bit about what I do, um, which is most of my friends, like they don't they don't care what I'm what I'm working on on a daily basis. Um, they like, they know that I know something about personality because like, that's the first thing that comes up in conversations. Right. They're like, Oh, I'm like an ENFP. And I'm like, hold on. (laughs) (laughs) And then like, we end up talking about that. So I talk about personality with people. Yeah. No, it has a potential. It has a potential to capture people's attention. Really? We're handed something easy and we still fucked it up. (laughs) So is the problem that personality psychology just isn't hyping what it already has? I think we do a <laughs> maybe, bad yeah, job. Maybe, yeah, maybe they're underhyping. Well, I think we study some of the wrong... Like, we could study more relevant things, too. And again, I think yeah. we've started doing a better job. But, like, personality... I mean, personality predicts relationship outcomes. It predicts work outcomes. It predicts health. Like, these are all things people care about. We're just getting better at studying those things and saying that we're studying those things. But, yeah, I mean... Yeah, I think that I don't think the answer is to hype more in personality psych. I think it's it's a combination of of changing what what we study a little bit 
and also communicating what we study better. So, okay, so what what do you guys think of? I I I want to. I think there's a position out there. I, I don't want to set up a straw man, so I want to try to set this up as as an actual position that I do think some people hold that I, I've heard people advocate, which is it's not a it's not in favor of unfettered hype, it's not a favor in favor of making things up, but the kind of like, hey, look, we have to engage people in what we do, we have to get them interested in what we do, we have to get funding, we have to get all these other things. And there's nothing wrong with playing ball a little bit when, you know, if, a you know, setting aside what we said about it's not the journal, like if a journalist, I mean, because I, I, I totally buy the general conclusion that in general, journalists aren't the major source. But I've certainly had interviews with journalists where they've asked me to play ball with things that I didn't want to go along with. I mean, I once had a, a magazine contact me and, and it was like, we want to put out like six relationship tips. And so can you turn this article that's like vaguely about relationships into six relationship tips? And I was like, no, I can't because there aren't any relationship tips in there. It's not testing an intervention. But anyway, you know, so but there's there's this article that's kind of like, look, don't be such a stick in the mud. Yeah. Don't be, don't retreat to your ivory tower. Don't be such the careful scientist that you're not willing to play with ideas, that you're not willing to speak in terms that will engage people, even if they're not like perfectly rigidly faithful to the, you know, causal inference framework and the sampling plan and all those other things. So, I mean, what do you guys think about the sort of like loosen up and play ball a little bit? kind of not not taking it all the way to just making shit up but like being willing to do that the devil's in the details right like loosen up how much i don't know i, I think it depends it depends on a couple of things whether you think we're getting less media attention than we should or more so like yeah i don't know right. i feel like social personality like does a pretty good job of getting in the media and the news i don't feel like we need to be doing more of it but um, I think that changed in the last 15 years, although I don't know because I wasn't in the field much before 15 years ago. Um, but then the other thing is it depends how confident you are that we have something ready to share with the world. And I think that's a lot of what the replicability debate is about is do we know the things we think we know and do we know them with enough confidence that we should be mm-hmm. moving on, building from them, sharing them, et cetera. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think this sort of overlaps with stuff that we've talked about before when it comes to having sort of like, when it it comes to trying trying to persuade people of things. And so you sort of like already have a stance that you want to make and then... um, And then it's like, okay, you have some data that support that and it seems like a useful idea to express or something like that. Like like take something that's, I don't know, um, sort of like easy to get behind the idea. Like, well prejudice, discrimination, they're bad. You know, like if you don't have fantastic scientific evidence for that, it's easy for me to imagine thinking like, okay, well, I'm going to play ball a little bit and say like overclaim a little bit because this is like an important message to get across. Um, And, you know, comparing like, okay, well, what are the other things that are being covered in the media? Maybe this is better than those things. Um, So I actually think, yeah, I mean... I think probably many people take a stance like what you're describing, Sanjay. Yeah. And I think that um, I think that that is often somewhere in like defenses of failed replications and things like that. I think there is some part of people sometimes that are just saying like, okay, well, like, what's the problem with the fact that you know, like, I'm telling people this thing. What's the harm, even if it's a little bit wrong? Yeah. I mean, I think where where I yeah, so where I start to feel uncomfortable with that is thinking about the fact that... So so the, the place that I get asked this probably the most often is things related to personality change. Because, you know, I, if I put out a paper showing the people descriptively that people change in some way, or even, you know, sort of explanatorily why or how or whatever, um, 
almost inevitably, if if I'm talking to a journalist about it, they'll want to say, well, what can people do to change their personalities? Mm-hmm, right. right. Like that's and that's just such an intrinsically interesting question. Mm-hmm. It's something that a lot of people are interested in. And my honest answer is I don't think we have very good information. So I think what, you know, like there's some indication that antidepressants and therapy can reduce your neuroticism. Mm-hmm. Like that's uh, that's pretty good. I think there's a lot of really interesting studies that people are starting to try to do about sort of self-driven personality change. But if I'm being honest with people, I, I have not yet reached the point where there is like an intervention that I would tell somebody, hey, you know, like here's the thing that you can do. Um, and I'm also not convinced yet I, I would like there to be, but I'm not convinced yet that that exists out there waiting to be found. Um, mm-hmm. Like, I, I've been studying personality development. I worked with an advisor who is a pathbreaker in showing that personality can and does change when people thought it didn't. I'm really committed to this idea that personality is something that develops, that it interacts with context. Um, but I, I also, there's the skeptic in me that says, like, I shouldn't, like I should only go as far as the data because if we're telling people do X, Y, and Z and it'll make you a more organized person and you'll be better in charge of the important conditions in your life or it'll make you a more outgoing person, you'll be more comfortable going to social situations and then it doesn't work and they've spent all the time doing it and they've, uh, you know, they, they might have spent money doing it. They might have, mm-hmm. you know, dedicated a period of their life doing it. They might have mm-hmm. foregone other opportunities to do it. They might have not gone to therapy to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, they might lose faith in personality psychology or psychology as a whole or science mm-hmm. as a whole by virtue of having taken this in. Right. That's what I worry about. Yeah, or you, um, like, I mean... Samina and I talk a lot about personality stability when it comes to relationships. So, like, you know, somebody could decide to stay in a relationship with the hope that, like, some aspect of their partner's personality could change. And I think often that is Fools. very... Fools. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, like, that... that Right, so, so I think the... I think sometimes we sort of have this like, what's the harm well, attitude right. about about hype? And and I guess I would want to I would want to hear somebody really defend the claim that if someone believes what I'm saying, there can be there really can't be. It's not just that. There's a consequence for science and this reputation mm-hmm. if we get yeah. caught out having exaggerated. So even if nobody was harmed, exaggerating ha- can have potential harm to the field. And you know, I think that. Yeah, like, I understand the loosen up argument. I think that in many domains of life besides science, that is accurate, and I deserve that criticism. <laughs> but I think that... I wasn't saying you need to loosen up, so... <laughs> but I think that as a I mean, I was scient- thinking, but I wasn't saying. <laughs> as a scientist, um, I think our number one kind of... I don't know what the word is. I'm blanking. Our number one something asset is our credibility. Yeah. And to put that on the line at all is a huge risk. And Mm -hmm. I think if you're knowingly stretching, you're making a very risky move to say that, like, because if you get caught or if people don't buy it, that hurts the credibility of your field, of your lab, of you, of potentially science, if enough scientists across enough fields do it. Mm -hmm. That's not that's a huge cost. Yeah, right. And I think like there's a difference between like having something that is an important message, which you could have as like somebody who's a non-scientist and then like investigating something that's an important question, in which case I think, you know, it's so important to not overclaim in that case. Right. Um, Yeah. I mean, I do think that um, social psychologists study things that are really important um, but that doesn't mean that, um, that you can just sort of like make the claims that you want to make. Is there some, um, I realize I'm sort of oscillating back and forth between two extremes, but I, I also, again, I want to sort of represent this position without making a straw man, but is there, is there a risk of like, if, if we're too cautious if some if if we have some evidence that something maybe works, is there a risk of failing to give people our sort of best estimate of what they ought to do before we've kind of met some high threshold for, mm. you know, for sort of 
you know, relative certainty or whatever. I so think, like, you know, if you think about like, like an FDA trial is a really high bar. And, and the reason is that if you give somebody some compound you invented in your lab, like it's very high likelihood you'll just poison them if you haven't tried it out a whole shitload. Right. But, but like, do, should we like, does that mean we should have that same evidentiary and, bar for like advising people like what to do in their relationships or whatever? No, but no one's saying that. No one's saying until there's been like several pre-registered randomized control yeah. trials, we can't give advice. But like where, where do you draw that line yeah. then? Yeah, I had something to say, but now how certain is certain enough? Right. So I, what I was going to say is like you could theoretically err too much in the other direction, but we've that's what our self interest and all other human motivations <laughs> will take care of. That we don't need someone checking to make sure that we are like getting credit for the things we have discovered, right? Like we need someone. We need accountability to make sure we're not overclaiming. I'm not sure we need a system in place to catch us when we're underclaiming. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I don't. Oh, I think. Should we end one less than an hour in? Should we try to keep it to a? Oh, we better end quick then, because we're. <laughs> yeah, we got yeah, right now. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Well, do you guys have? Are we done? I'm good. Okay. Yeah. I feel like that. Well, sometimes we like land on a nice point. Sometimes it's like, oh, okay, we're done. <laughs> so this is one of those. All right. Well, <laughs> thanks, guys. And I'm looking forward to seeing the two of you, like, in 24 hours wow. in Atlanta, yeah. Georgia. And sorry to our audience for having to listen to that, because you'll be hearing this, like, a week after we've seen each other. But we're all excited. Mm -hmm. And maybe some of you listeners, we will have seen you after we recorded this book before you hear <laughs> it. Was it. Nice it, was, yeah, it was nice to see you. Yeah, it was so nice to see you in Atlanta. It was nice to meet our, our listeners. And if you don't go to SPS, be sorry to have missed you. Um, so, yeah, thanks, everyone, for listening to The Black Goat, and we'll talk to you next time.